I'm Tim Gombis, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I recommend a wonderful and insightful book about narcissism in the church, and I talk about the opening of Paul's letter to the Romans. So I'm standing in my kitchen on an absolutely gorgeous summer day, staring out the window at uh, some road crews laying down some new road outside our house, that kind of black tar stuff and, and uh, pebble, which uh, I didn't really know needed to be done, and uh, which also is going to doom me for some time now to smelling burning hair for the next however long. Ever since last October, when I had COVID, um, my sense of smell got is it just it's been wonky, and uh, a number of smells smell like burning hair. Um, tragically, one of my favorite foods is eggs, and um, I eat loads of eggs. We go through several dozen eggs a week, and uh, in this house, um, eggs smell like burning hair. Less so now, uh, which is great, uh, but also a number of things that are put on the road smell like burning hair, and uh, I have no idea why this is the case, but uh, I'm doomed for a while. I love sitting outside on days like today, uh, sitting on my patio reading in the shade or reading in the sun, and um, it just sort of, the smell that's in the air is just uh, affects that slightly, makes that a slightly less pleasant experience. Uh, but a lot of people live with a lot of lot more difficult things than I do, so I'll be just fine. Uh, I wanted to mention, um, I've offered over the last several weeks in uh, going through Romans, I offered um, to send anybody uh, the version of Romans that I've put together. It's uh, in one document. If you want a copy of that, you're very welcome to email me. And I uh, loads of folks have written to me and I've sent that. And uh, people have taken the opportunity to um, express appreciation for this podcast in various ways and for various reasons. And um, I, that's really gratifying. And I'm just so happy to hear that. Uh, I've mentioned that I'm doing this podcast for me. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, uh, but I offer it to anybody uh, who is interested. And um even though I'm doing this largely for myself, uh, for my purposes, keep myself intellectually engaged, um, it really is nice to hear from other people and to hear the particular ways that you have appreciated it. So thank you. That I, um, it's, it's gratifying and it's, uh, it's felt really kind. Um, been listening to a lot of Doves recently, which I, I go back to uh, Doves quite often especially their first three albums, uh, Lost Souls, The Last Broadcast, and Some Cities. And um, their music is just, it's so perfect for me for working. Like in an afternoon, if I've just got to do a bunch of emailing or administrative work or whatever, I'll put on Doves. And it just, it's the kind of brooding, groovy music that just is perfect for me to kind of, I don't know, 
focus. Uh, had them on all morning today, which was great uh, as I worked on a number of other things and I sort of threw a little bit of a structure together for this episode. So uh, check out Dubs. This is great rock. They do have a recent album out uh, from like last year, but I, I haven't gotten into it. I, I sort of go back to just music I've always loved and uh, I don't often check out new music unless something you know just really grabs me, but for whatever reason, I haven't done that. Um, Sarah and I enjoyed the first episode of the second season of Ted Lasso last Friday. And I have to say, we were so utterly disappointed that the entire season didn't drop. That's what we were expecting. We were we um, had prepared to completely check out of the world, ordered some Thai takeout, hunker down on the couch downstairs, and um, expected to just sort of enjoy a long evening and night binging the second season of Ted Lasso. But they only dropped the first episode. It was, I mean, it's it's great. It's it looks like it's going to be really really good. Um, but man, the disappointment was crushing, truly crushing. Uh, uh, last week we went back and rewatched uh, the first season just to get ourselves up to speed. It's such a great show, so sweet in every possible way. Great storytelling. Fantastic writing, uh, dropped a Fletch reference, and you know, anytime someone drops a a Fletch reference in passing, I mean, that's just that just shows you're smart. You got it going on. Um, a couple weeks ago, I I mentioned uh, in, in answer to uh, somebody had asked me about identity and and why um, it's such a big deal uh, to have sort of the core of my identity be. Uh, beloved of God and how I sort of think from that perspective about my life and about the narrative that I'm in. Um, a great book on this, one that really helped to uh, to shape my thinking on this is Henry Nouwen's book, The Life of the Beloved. It is, it's a short book. It's easy, easy to read. It's, um, it's just a very tender book. And for me, it was um, just huge huge in sort of uh, fostering my identity and um, yeah, thinking about and shaping the the narrative that I inhabit. I can't remember what exactly I talked about several weeks back, um, but in coming to understand my personality type a lot better over the last couple of years uh, with the help of various sources, um, I came to see that the narrative that I can sort of intuitively construct or that I had intuitively constructed or unintentionally constructed for myself uh, was a, a narrative called lack and tended to see myself in terms of victimhood and um, which fostered all kinds of mindsets that were really destructive in a variety of ways. And so um, one of the ways I like to think about myself and purposefully construct the narrative that I inhabit is to tell myself daily, I inhabit this narrative. Um, I, I'm in a story called Plenty. And my identity in that story is gift recipient. And, um, and my identity is beloved of God. And to think about the various features of my life from that perspective just 
fosters in me such gratitude and hope. And it's very life-giving and it's changed the way I see myself and other people. I don't remember if I had said all that earlier, but uh, for a great resource on this, um, check out The Life of the Beloved. Wonderful, wonderful little book. Um, Lou sent me this article and I, I had emailed him that I was going to um, sort of share some thoughts on this. Uh, he sent me an article by Charles Murray and asked me to, you know, what, what my thoughts about it were. And um, so I thought I would share those. Uh, he sent me an article by Charles Murray uh, called Identity Crisis, How the Politics of Race Will Wreck America. And it's published this month in The Spectator, which is a, a conservative uh, political uh, magazine. And uh, Charles Murray has, is um, someone who has written over the years uh, on, on matters of race and that sort of thing. Um, Murray, well, so anyway, so here, here it goes. By the way, uh, Lou sent me the PDF of this. So if you want a copy of it, uh, you're welcome to, to write me and I'll, I'll be very happy to send this on to you. Um, yeah, it's about identity politics and which is, is often misunderstood. It's often sort of a slur that's thrown around. Uh, it can be sort of used dismissively. Oh, that's just identity politics. Um, and in uh, over the last couple of months, I've, I've dug around a little bit to learn more about where that expression comes from. It has an interesting history. Uh, it's pretty recent. And um, anyway, I'll get into that a little bit more in just a little bit. So a couple thoughts on this article and about identity politics in general. Uh, Murray claims that um, the brilliance or the genius of the American system of government is that it was purposely constructed as an alternative to other forms of government, uh, forms of government that were shaped by acquisitiveness, uh, you know, basically greed or, you know, seeking to acquire things, um, acquiring money, status and power, uh, systems that you know, fostered hierarchies and uh, systems of government that were run by a dominant group that arranged affairs to its benefit and ended up oppressing outsiders in various degrees. So Murray claims that you know the American system of government was set up in a, as an alternative to all of that, one that fosters sort of fairness and equality and all of that. And in my opinion, that's a very uh, that's an overly rosy an optimistic assessment of how the American system of government was set up. It was set up, and 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 by the way, that's probably I that's certainly what I was taught when I was in school. That's the story of America that I was told, and I think that that is a myth that is um, passed on. That we're we're sort of all taught that, um, among a variety of myths that we're taught in uh, in our schooling in our education system you know, uh, this kind of idea that, you know, anybody can be president or anybody can rise through grit and hard work and determination. Uh, we're given this kind of founding myth that, uh, you know, the founders and framers, uh, were these, you know, wonderful people that, uh, and the constitution was sort of this divinely inspired document. Um, yeah, a lot of these things are founding myths that, that sort of foster in us, um, a sense of patriotism and loyalty to our country, 
Um, and that's a that's a story that glosses over a ton of injustice, and it foster uh, it, it sort of um, neglects to mention, you know, the genocide of indigenous people. Uh, it neglects to it, it sort of over overlooks um, the displacement of indigenous people. It certainly overlooks uh, the ongoing um, injustice suffered by black and brown people. And yeah, it, it does not take into account that um, white Europeans that came to this land a long time ago uh, were doing so for loads of nefarious reasons. And um, But anyway, along with all of that, just to say that um, I think Murray's uh, claims about the brilliance of the American system of government ignores the reality that that is precisely how the Constitution the Constitution was set up. It was set up to benefit wealthy white landowners and was basically constructed to protect their interests purposefully. Um, Jared Yates Sexton tells that story in his book American Rule, which is really fascinating. Uh, really fascinating book. I talked about that some time ago. Uh, as does Jill Lepore's book, These Truths, which is a brilliant history of the United States. And I think I recommended that book last year as well, which uh, that was a summer reading book I could not put down and was definitely bummed when I finished it. It was just a delight to read and fascinating and um, quite enlightening. Um, but African-Americans were enslaved. Women were disenfranchised. That is, they couldn't vote. Um, Poorer white people were also oppressed, and the system was sort of set up um, to sort of exclude them. And whiteness and maleness have always been centered in American culture, and this is reflected in our laws and cultural practices and in our uh, the formation of how our culture is structured. So I would disagree with Murray that uh, the American system of government doesn't benefit anybody but isn't um, sort of naturally fair. It simply isn't. That's that's just that's not historically accurate, and it's not a faithful account of how the Constitution was set up. It's interesting. Um, uh, yeah, Jared Yates Sexton tells the story in his book American Rule, and also uh, he does this with you know loads of footnotes and references to discussions that the framers and founders. Uh, had with each other. This was very purposeful. Uh, Murray goes on to define identity politics in this way. Um, identity politics insists that the power of the state be used to reward favored groups at the expense of everyone else. Identity politics insists that the power of the state be used to reward favored groups at the expense of everyone else. And I think this is an inaccurate description of identity politics. That's simply uh, not the case. And I think that Murray's way of thinking about that and his way of describing that uh, is a way of doing so that is captive to whiteness. And by whiteness, I don't mean existence as a white person. I'm referring rather to the ideological lens that we have all inherited as a result of our of, um, European colonialism over the last, you know, five to seven hundred years. Um, you know, whiteness is a way of seeing the world that that centers itself. 
whiteness is centered. It's, it's the norm. It's the standard by which uh, everybody else is judged. Uh, it's how we all see beauty and ugliness. You know, what is good and what is bad. Spaces that are safe and unsafe. And of course, it's, that, that includes how we're all trained and taught to see other human beings. So, you know, whiteness is this inheritance that has shaped us all. And um, it, it affects us all. It affects, it's, it's a, a global phenomenon now because of uh, European colonialism. Uh, and not only that, um, you know, uh, political power belong, uh, is sort of the center of gravity of political power, to this point anyway, uh, has been in uh, the West, in, in uh, Northern and Western Europe and America especially. And um, yeah, what uh, power is consolidated and wealth is cons uh, consolidated uh, really in the hands of white people to the exclusion of, of everybody else. So political power, um, economic power, and, and all of that shapes um, the images that we see in our world. It shapes advertising, it shapes films and literature. Um, our culture and our global culture has centered whiteness historically, certainly over the last hundred years as sort of uh, entertainment has gone global. Um, the people who make films um, are largely uh, white men and um, because the way that films are made is subject to market demands, um, that continues. That's sort of how we see the world. And uh, politics in America has always centered whiteness. And in this sense, America is white supremacist. Uh, that is, in the ordering of our culture, whiteness is elevated and blackness is subjugated. And that is the case in our laws, entertainment, geography. I mean, how spaces are laid out. Uh, in cities and towns and everything else. And of course, that includes politics. So naturally, all of us have been enculturated to view all of that as normal because that's just the way the world is. Um, that and, and certainly that's the case for white people. We just see that as normal. And as a result of that, any sort of political viewpoint that advocates for the just treatment of others, of indigenous people, black and brown people, women, that is all seen as identity politics because it appears to us a departure from the norm. Um, you know, nobody is, well, not nobody, but very few people in public life will sort of advocate for the, uh, the priority of white men. Um, but that is just seen as the norm. It, it, the way that everything is structured centers white men as the norm. And that means that privileges and participation in culture uh, exclude, privileges are cut off from women, people of color, from black people, from indigenous people. Um, you know, participation in uh, voting, et cetera, is cut off from others. And, um, you know, white men are sort of shaped to see all of that as normal. And so we tend to see um, demands that uh, for fuller inclusion. We tend to see that as advocacy in some way, or we tend to see that as identity politics. That's not normal politics. That's identity politics. Um, but really, identity politics has been going on since before the founding of America. It's just that 
all of that has benefited historically white, wealthy, landowning men. Um, so I think that Murray is wrong to say that identity politics insists that the power of the state be used to reward favored groups at the expense of everyone else, because that has actually what has happened in America since before the nation's founding. And um, American politics has historically rewarded white men at the expense of everyone else. Again, see Joe Lepore's book and Jared Yates Sext uh, Sexton's book. Just a few examples of this. Um, Native people were driven from their ancestral lands over the last few hundred years. Sorry, that's a passive. I, I'm, I'm trying to remind myself to put things in the active um, in, in, in the active voice, instead of saying native people were driven from their lands, uh, white European settlers in America drove native people from their ancestral lands over the last few hundred years. And the government gave that land to white people. Um, in the mid 19th century, uh, black people that applied for land grants, freed black people were excluded from those government handouts. They went to white people. Uh, after World War II, returning black veterans were not able to use the GI Bill for education and housing like white war veterans did. Black war veterans were excluded from these government benefits and so were prevented over the last um, 70 years or so, 75 years, they've been prevented from participating in the growing middle class that resulted over the ensuing decades. So Groups have been excluded, and one group has been prioritized. That is what has happened. And um, identity politics is an expression that was coined by a group of black women scholars uh, who sought to support one another and others who had been historically excluded from political and cultural involvement. Uh, identity politics is an effort to advocate for their interests and for their inclusion in the benefits of participation that are already open to white people, that are already open to, to others except for them. So they're advocating for inclusion. And I think that Murray has fallen prey to the error of a zero-sum logic that Heather McGee uh, talks about in her book, The Sum of Us, which I talked about a couple months ago, a brilliant, brilliant book on this. Um, where she argues that it is not the case. I mean, studies have even shown that it is not the case that if others are included and if others benefit, then we lose. That's, that's the way of seeing the world that we all sort of um, naturally fall into, but it's actually wrong from experience. And for my part, I certainly cannot think that way as a Christian. Uh, one of the big things that uh, Scripture is doing is it is constantly reorienting our imaginations. It is constantly renewing our imaginations to, to get us to see the world differently and uh, to see that we live in a world of plenty. I mean, God is the God who gives life from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. Uh, so the world is sort of uh, structured according to resurrection logic. And certainly the kingdom of God is ordered by that uh, by that reality. Um, so a Christian way of seeing is seeing that there is more than enough to go around. It is not at all the case 
that if others benefit and if others are included, um, that we're going to lose out somehow. That way of thinking, uh, we have to uproot that way of thinking and get rid of it as Christian people. If others are included, if others uh, are allowed to fully participate, um, then that will be a blessing for all of us. That will be wonderful for all of us. And it's only a corrupted way of seeing things that excludes others, um, excuse me, um, out of fear that we're going to lose out. That is simply not how Christians see the world. Uh, in the Gospels, the feeding miracles are a massive um, sort of picture of this. The disciples see the world as a world of limited goods, but Jesus is trying to get them and the church to see that we live in a world of unlimited goods. There's actually plenty here. There's more than enough. Uh, you know, in the feeding miracles, there's there are leftovers, and uh, to get the church to see the world differently. Greater inclusion benefits everyone. When black and brown people are included in culture and politics, everyone benefits. Advocacy for the inclusion of others is not advocacy that some people win and others lose. So that uh, that zero-sum logic in my mind has got to go. And I think that Murray being captive to that, um, I think that is unfortunate. But I do think that that's um, a very widely shared um, way of seeing things. And I think that that shapes uh, white culture. I think that's part of whiteness in America, uh, that we will, um, yeah, we're a divided up people. And we seek to exclude people that we see as dangerous. Um, and part of whiteness is to see blackness as dangerous, as a threat. Um, but a renewed way of seeing, a Christian way of seeing others is to see others as promising and hopeful and engagement with people that we're unfamiliar with is an opportunity for God to give life to us. So, um, and lastly, uh, Murray states that uh, identity politics, and he mentions people on the left here, uh, they insist that white people are irredeemably racist. And Murray says that this is counterproductive because it inevitably sets, um, it creates this us and them kind of logic. And um, that's really unfortunate. So I, I disagree with Murray on this uh, because people who talk about identity politics and people who um, uh, see this as a hopeful way forward, they do not actually accuse white people of being irredeemably racist. And people who talk about race do not, uh, say that white people are irredeemably racist. I think that this is how white people, white men especially, uh, this is how white people typically hear talk about race. They hear it as an, uh, an accusation that there's nothing they could do. They're 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 racist people, and you know, talk about race is simply meant to generate guilt and shame. But that's that's terribly unhelpful. And I think that that is a manifestation of white fragility. Uh, Robin D'Angelo in her book, White Fragility, talks about this. Um, in discussing race, guilt and shame are entirely unhelpful. Those are, those are not useful emotions in sort of uh, helpfully discussing race. And she talks about, as do many, many people, most people that I've read, everybody that I've read, 
uh, who talks about race, um, discusses it not as um, you know an individual thing, but as a societal structural reality. Um, they seek to expose the structure of whiteness, um, the structure, the structural reality of white supremacy, and to expose whiteness as an ideological inheritance. That is, it's this inherited way of seeing that we have all gotten, uh, that we've all been enculturated into as a result of our European colonialist past. And um, oh, Willie Jennings in his book, uh, The Christian Imagination, is unbelievably helpful and illuminating on this, uh, where he goes into um, the documentation uh, where European colonialists ranked sort of the value of people on a scale from whiteness to blackness and um, skin color and uh, uh, you know mixed mixed race uh, children and all of that it's it's brilliant it's a brilliant exposure of what um, of that cultural heritage that we've all been saddled with and as a result of all, all as a result of all of that we are divided American culture is divided. Uh, it's a racialized culture. Race is a reality that has sort of been foisted upon all of us. And uh, a Christian approach to all of that, in my opinion, um, is to name it and identify it. That's part of what um, understanding and identifying and naming the powers and authorities and their effects on our world is all about. And the whole point of Christian community is to form communities that resist those kinds of divisive dynamics and um, overturn them through the formation of community that is inclusive and characterized by flourishing and not and unity and not by division. So I can't speak for people on the left. I'm not on the left or on the right. I don't. Uh, I don't like to position myself on on that spectrum. Being on the left or the right. Um, is a way of understanding oneself and one's own viewpoint on a spectrum that is shaped by liberal democracy. And what I've tried to do is understand myself um, within the kingdom of God, which is which is different, is a different reality than um, a liberal democratic reality. So I can't speak uh, for people on the left, but I've not heard this accusation that white people are irredeemably racist. Um but certainly folks that talk about race uh, don't make that claim. So I think that Murray is wrongly uh, characterizing that. Uh, what people who talk about race try to expose is the structure. Uh, they point out systemic injustices, historic injustices, and they seek to redress those and correct those. Uh, so identity politics is just that, um, that way of reckoning with the reality that there are certain groups that have been historically excluded and um, uh, mistreated, oppressed, etc., and um, you know, you know, they do not enjoy the fullness of um, you know guaranteed rights that uh, other people enjoy. And identity politics involves advocacy for inclusion and for justice, which. Um, resonates with with uh, my impulses as a Christian person. So that viewpoint, 
it's unfortunate that identity politics has become just this dismissive epithet um, or an accusation or something like that. That's unfortunate. Um, but I pay attention to identity politics in the best sense, in the, in the original sense that the um, the, the Combahee River uh, Collective, um, a collection of black female scholars, um, the way that they described it and the way that they talk about it. And this is why I pay close attention. Um, it's because I'm a student of the Apostle Paul, basically. And um, when I did my PhD, I did it on um, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, seeing that uh, Paul's discussion of the powers and authorities, these cosmic entities that pervert and corrupt uh, cultures at a structural level, uh, because Paul noted that reality and talked about the life of the church in terms of that larger system and talked about um, you know the narrative of God's work of salvation and the work of God in the death and resurrection of Christ, because he talked about all of that in those terms they're important to me. And uh, to isolate and identify them and their effects in culture, on the structures of our culture and the ideologies that, and the, the ideologies that they foster, um, and how all of that um, results in oppression, exploitation, marginalization, exclusion, domination of one group over another, uh, it's incumbent upon me and the church in obedience to the Lord Jesus and his apostle, speaking to us through his apostle, to do that work of analyzing culture for its corruptions. Uh, so, and in um, these figures play uh, a role in uh, Romans as well, certainly a big role in 1 Corinthians. Uh, but I'm seeing that in Romans, this is a big deal as well. And the powers and authorities show up uh, at the end of Romans 8, where Paul talks about all these cosmic entities. Uh, there's a reason he sort of sums everything up when he does so rhetorically, because he has them in his mind all the time. That's how he sees the world. And uh, the major powers that are that are at work, especially um, as Paul unfolds um, his sort of narrative in Romans, his argument in Romans, the major figures are sin and death. And they are cosmic entities that pervert and corrupt human culture. Uh, at structural levels. And so um, being unaware of them uh, means that we're living in ways where we, we basically become tools or participants in unrighteousness, which um, Paul would want us to be thinking in terms of injustice. It's the same term uh, in Greek. So uh, in Romans 6, uh, Paul talks about no longer presenting ourselves as instruments of unjustice, of injustice, and of unrighteousness. And so that involves being discerning about how our, our um, corporate cultures are oriented. Uh, and I think it's interesting as well in Colossians, in uh, Galatians, and uh, one other place that i um, focusing on, the squirrel outside my window, so I can't quite recall it at the moment. But in several key places in his letters, when Paul talks about salvation, he moves immediately to talk about social class, ethnicity, and gender. And under ethnicity, we can think in terms of race, because the ideology of race is a modern invention, but it runs along the lines of ethnicity. So if Paul is thinking about social class, ethnicity, race, and gender, we have to as well. And we have to understand uh, how women are affected in our 
uh, church cultures and in our larger culture, um, how black people, people of color are affected by uh, the structures of our culture and how uh, economics works in such ways uh, to foster division, exclusion, and oppression. And the reason I pay very close attention to all of that is because I'm a student of Paul. That's to say nothing of Jesus's love command to love my neighbor as myself. So when I think about my comforts and privileges and priorities and desires and hopes and fears and all the rest, um, it's my duty and delight and my privilege uh, to be thinking about my neighbor and my neighbors in the very same way. What are their hopes and fears? What are the ways that they are harmed? Um, what are their desires? How does living in this culture affect them? And I just wrote out this list of why I pay attention to identity politics. Another reason is just the very dynamics that are inherent in the kingdom where the first are being made last and the last are being made first. And there's this dynamic of movement in the kingdom where God is decentering people who have been centered by virtue of social class, ethnicity, and gender. And in my inherited culture, that's white men. And so I, as a white man, know, I've learned, that I will look out on my church culture and my larger culture, and I will say, well, this is just normal because the way that I feel culture is, well, I just don't feel it really. I'm sort of going with um, the tide or I'm going with the flow of the cultural stream. Um, but other people have to go upstream. The, the, you know, the, the drift is, is running against them, you know, women, people of color. And um, it's my, again, my delight in being a Christian to notice how I am being decentered according to the dynamics of the kingdom and other people who have been marginalized in church culture or in the wider culture, how they've been marginalized, the people that have been marginalized are being brought toward the center. So we all meet together and um, sort of link arms as siblings in Jesus's family. We all sit at the table um, gathered around Jesus and sort of sitting at the same level where we are siblings, partners, mutual partners, and hierarchies are being eliminated in the kingdom. So for me, uh, thoughtful writers and speakers uh, and scholars who work in identity politics point all of that out and can point out the structures of how, our, uh, how we have inherited this culture. And that gives me, um, that helps me to discern how the kingdom is at work. And I want to be able to see that so that I can participate in it and enjoy the fullness of Jesus's one new family and not um, not participate in church culture in a, in a way that is corrupted. Um, and I've mentioned this before, I believe, but in James 1, James gets at this dynamic. Um, keep in mind that James writes his letter. I mean, the whole letter is filled um, basically with, uh, it sort of orients around the, the consistent and persistent theme of social class divisions. Uh, there's the rich and there's the poor. <clears throat> and James has some pretty blistering things to say to the rich in chapter five. And um, there, there are conflicts in churches uh, based on uh, economic difference, based on social class. And James tells us how we're how we are to see ourselves. 
and he talks about the person of privilege. He, he says, let the person um, who is privileged, who is highborn or who is wealthy, let them glory or own an identity of humiliation. And let the person who is lower class, let them boast in or let them own an identity of exaltation. So based on how we are situated uh, with regard to culture, that determines how we're supposed to see ourselves as Christian people, as disciples and participants in Christian community. And um, for me, that has meant doing some research which doesn't take a whole long, a whole lot of time. You can you can look this up online. You can uh, check out where your standard of living puts you in your city, in your state, in in the nation, and in the world. And um, you know, just sort of coming to understand that my income puts me uh, in my town is crazy. Uh, well, I'll just say I know where it puts me, and that means that I am one of those people. Uh, that James exhorts to own an identity of humiliation, um, not of you know self harm or you know, downgrading myself, uh, but reminding myself of who I am and of whose I am, and to whom I've been given as a gift, and the people who are given as a gift to me, uh, and that means I've got to go to work on my inherited lens of whiteness and maleness and um, how uh, those identities are centered so that I could see who my siblings in the faith actually are. Um, So I have to rework my imagination of what is good and bad and what is safe and unsafe. And and to do all of that, really following Jesus and his exponent, James. Um, Also, I've done a lot of thinking uh, this has just been prominent in my mind over the last couple of years as I've just tried to learn as much as I can about gender and race. Uh, Paul uh, exhorts the Colossians to cultivate a heart of compassion, to put on uh, the emotions of compassion. So for me, that means learning about the lives of other people and learning about uh, how culture affects them. Um and to feel it and to begin to see the world through their eyes. So for me, that's meant uh, over the last couple of years, just reading loads of books uh, by black women authors, because they are the people in American culture who see all of it most clearly. Others can for sure. Um, but because of the harm and the, the wounds that they suffer and the slights and the, the bumps and bruises they get by how our culture is wired, there is, a massive reservoir of wisdom that black women have about how to navigate that culture, uh, to navigate our culture. And I want to learn from that again, so that I can be um, a joyful participant in kingdom dynamics. Um, and the last thing I'll say is I, I just really thought that uh, Stacey Abrams uh, a couple of years ago said, who I, and Stacey Abrams is just one of the most interesting and compelling political figures um, in our time here in America. And I, I find her so endlessly interesting and fascinating. Um, just so much wisdom uh, she has and such compassion and care uh, for people who suffer and um, such persistent efforts, especially in Georgia, just a compelling figure. I, I really think she's so interesting. 
she was asked about identity politics and she summed it up like this. This is not an exact quote, but she said, identity politics means I see you and I recognize the unique struggles you face. I think that is brilliant. That is brilliant. Identity politics is not um, seeking to benefit certain groups at the expense of others. That's, that's, um, that's simply inaccurate and it's a bad way of seeing uh, what identity politics aims to do. Identity politics is a way of understanding others who are located in other social situations than I am. And that's something that I want to do. And that flows not from being anywhere on a liberal democratic spectrum. It flows simply from my study of the New Testament and my understanding of what God has done and is doing in the world uh, to reclaim it for the glory of his name. So anyway, Lou, thank you for sending me that. It was a good um, exercise to read uh, Murray's article and to reflect on it. You're welcome to object or, re- or respond to anything that I've said. And um, I welcome any thoughts on any of that from anybody else as well. And like I said, if you want to take a look at that article, um, let me know. There's also a really interesting article. Um, I'm forgetting where it is right now, uh, but there's some good writing on identity politics. I think it was like the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, maybe. Uh, but there's a encyclopedia entry you could find it pretty easily uh, about identity politics and its history and how it was formed and why that sort of viewpoint came about, which I think is is really really enlightening, especially if you don't know anything about it or if you've heard it used in a dismissive or derogatory sense. <laughs> I want to tell you about a book. It's by Chuck DeGroat, and it's called When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse, and it's published by IVP. Chuck's a professor of pastoral care and spiritual theology down the road from me here uh, at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. I've said a lot about evangelical culture over the course of this podcast. The reason I've done that is there are certain dynamics to how the culture is structured that can bring out the worst in people, um, along with distorting many aspects of the New Testament's depiction of Christian community life. One of these dynamics is that church cultures can easily become cults of personality. Church cultures can foster in pastors and ministry leaders a supreme concern with their reputation, their image, their prestige, power, social media platform. Pastors can easily be seduced by these dynamics and fall into a desperate need for affirmation and praise. And, just as important, DeGroote notes that churches can themselves become narcissistic as corporate cultures in their corporate personality, which is something we don't think enough about because of our lens of individualism. And all of that can work to generate dynamics that are abusive and do loads of long-lasting harm to vulnerable people. We've seen that in high-profile situations such as Bill Hybels at Willow Creek outside Chicago, Mark Driscoll at Mars Hill in Seattle, and there are loads of other situations that we don't hear about. In fact, I've had this book for a few months, but read through it after listening to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which I highly recommend. It tells the story of Driscoll and Mars Hill and unpacks all the very complex dynamics that can be initially thrilling 
but can do catastrophic damage. DeGroat helpfully discusses narcissism from a clinical perspective, which is often misunderstood. And he also very helpfully talks about how it can take on different forms, given different personality types. In one chapter, he writes about the nine different faces of narcissism using the nine personality types of the Enneagram, which is so enlightening. He then draws out how narcissism manifests in ministry, showing up in pastors and in church systems that foster and support them. The book is filled with anecdotes from DeGroat's years of working with pastors and churches and counseling people who have been wounded by narcissists. Chuck's a great writer, wonderfully insightful and warm, and the book is challenging to everyone who longs to participate fruitfully in the life of the church. And it's ultimately a hopeful book as DeGroat points the way toward healing for narcissists, for churches, and for people who have suffered harm. I highly recommend this book. It's really a must read for pastors and church leaders, one to read together and discuss. The book is When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. It's by Chuck DeGroat and it's published by IVP. Get it from an independent bookstore. So Romans, let's get into it. Uh, I'm, I aim to talk about the letter opening, which is uh, Romans 1, verses 1 to 17. And uh, I'm just going to jump right in. Uh, if you set this letter opening over against those of other letters, you'll notice that it's quite distinctive. Uh, it's a lot longer than the greetings to other letters. Uh, certainly Galatians and you know, pretty much any letter. Ephesians actually has a long letter introduction, which is sort of a prayer wish or a prayer blessing uh, over the audiences to that letter. And that makes some kind of sense for Ephesians, because that letter is, is written to a range of churches, maybe some, well, some of which Paul does not know. Uh, he's never been there. So there's some reason for that. Um, and this letter is is quite similar. Paul does not know the Roman Christians. He's not been there. And um and by the way, I say Roman Christians uh, because I'm trying to be fair to Paul's language. It's interesting. One of the interesting, uh, interesting things about Romans is that Paul does not use the term church in this letter. And I don't, I haven't landed on any kind of reason why that's the case. Um, it may be, I mean, John Barclay sort of gets at this in his brilliant, masterful work, Paul and the Gift. Uh, he sort of talks about um, how this letter is an attempt for Paul. Uh, well, he says this in the greeting. Um, he, he's, he wants to found or he wants to establish these churches. He wants to establish his audiences. And uh, I don't know if it's the case, or um, Barclay talks about how Paul is sort of bringing the Roman Christians under uh, the purview of his apostolic care um, because he's responsible for them as the apostle to the Gentiles, uh, the apostle to the nations. Um, you, I, I don't know if he, I don't know if it's going too far to say that Paul does not yet see these Roman Christians as actually being churches, uh, because this hasn't happened yet. They're not under some kind of like apostolic responsible care. I think that may be going too far, but I'm, I'm, I may refer, I think it's fair to refer to churches, these, uh, house and, and, um, apartment churches that are meeting, that are networked and meeting, 
in various places in Rome. Um, according to the household greetings that are in chapter 16. Uh, I think it's fair to call them churches, but I also want to respect Paul's rhetoric, and I'll probably be referring to the Roman Christians. But I know that I'll talk about the house churches uh, throughout the city as well. But this letter is longer because Paul doesn't know them. So it's more ponderous, it's considered, and there's some interesting things that Paul does rhetorically in this greeting. Um, and this is pretty typical of other letters as well. Uh, the way that Paul greets his audiences in some way uh, participates in the reality of what Paul is trying to do in the rest of the letter. So there's like a match. And you could see that especially in Romans, um, where he is trying to bring together these uh, different factions in the Roman house churches. Uh, I just said it, and that's fine. Um, he's trying to bring them together because there's division uh, over ethnic identity, over what it means to be Christian. And um, you can see that he, he wants to create this kind of mutuality. And so he embodies that kind of mutuality when he greets them and in the things he says about them and himself and in the things that he says about all of them together, which is really interesting. Um, so there's... All, there's already a rhetorical strategy up and running in the letter opening. So we need to pay attention to that. We need to pay attention to what exactly Paul says, but also to the rhetorical strategy because language works in some ways. Um, there's and, and Paul chooses his words very, very carefully. So to start out, Paul identifies himself and then he is going to identify his audiences. Uh, he, he says, about himself, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, or called apostle, or a called apostle, um, which is really interesting. I know in the form, in the document that I sent out, um, I reflected, I think it's the New American Standard Bible translation, um, they use the term bondservant instead of slave. And I know that there are other modern translations that resist using slave language, which I think is tremendously unfortunate. The Greek term, I mean, Paul uses the Greek term doulos to refer to himself. That's slave. And diakonos is servant, and sometimes he'll use that term. But I think it's really strategic that he identifies himself as a slave, um, which he does in most of his letters. Um, because going back to identity politics, Paul is very into um, identity politics. He's, he's shaping his identity. And uh, to be a slave in first century Rome, just like anywhere, is to have a is to be a person that does not um, have mastery over their own body. There's someone who is mastered by someone else. And to be a slave in first century Rome is to be thought of as not human because to be fully human, uh, which according to first century Roman values, only men were fully human because, and only free men, um, they're, they were the only humans because um, to be human is to be self-determining, not to be determined or owned or mastered by anybody else. And um, so, Paul 
purposefully chooses this term to identify himself because it sets him in a posture of humility with reference to the Roman churches. I mean, he does not, Paul does not come to them above them. You know, he's not, uh, this, it bothers me now um, with all of the authority talk, uh, especially in my inherited culture, when we think about Paul, like Paul had apostolic authority. He was an authoritative apostle. That's, that's not how he thought of himself. That's not what he said of himself. When he uh, can construct his identity to his audiences, he sets himself below them. He approaches other people from a social station that is the lowest you possibly can be. So, and, that, and that's very intentional. It's very purposeful. He's not a nobleman. He's not, you know, a freedman. Um, you know, he's not even Paul the apostle. Um, he is a slave and he is a God called apostle. In fact, it's really important that he says that he is called an apostle. Uh, because later he's going to identify his audiences as people who are called saints, called holy ones. Um, in that sense, he shares an identity with his audiences. They're both people that are called. They're all people that have been called by God. Um, it's just that this uh, sort of role Paul is uh, fulfilling as an apostle, because that's you know sort of God's prerogative, it's not something that he has invented. Um, so anyway, just to say, this the way that Paul constructs his identity is to situate himself in a lower social position uh, than his audience and alongside his audience. He's called, he's going to later say that they also are called. Um, and he is, uh, he's a servant of the gospel of God. And uh, which is in continuity with the promises found in the prophets. I mean, that is basically uh, that's Paul's fundamental conviction about everything that he's doing. It's not this um, this complete departure. It's in total continuity with the promises that are found in the prophets. And we'll see that as we go through Romans. There's just loads of quotes uh, from the Old Testament. His entire argument is based in the Old Testament really from beginning to end. And um, it seems that for Paul, um, you know, the, the promises, especially in Isaiah, of God working out his justice, of God working out his salvation among all peoples, that that is especially determinative for how Paul um, thinks about, you know, the content and the, the reality of the gospel uh, of which he is a servant. And uh, that gospel concerns the earthly life and the heavenly exaltation of Jesus Christ. So he mentions that Jesus, according to the flesh, is the seed of David. He's in the line of David, uh, which sort of gives it uh, you know, that royal messianic role that Jesus plays. It's very interesting also that he speaks of, of Jesus' heavenly position. That is, he is declared... Son of God in power. And it seems to me that this gets at how Jesus has been vindicated by God. If you think about Jesus's earthly life, I mean, just go back to the Gospels. Um, in various ways, Jesus is making claims about his identity. 
but he lived this this earthly life of humiliation and servanthood. And the claim that is made about Jesus on earth is that he is not the Son of God. I mean, um, Jesus's Jewish audiences did not regard him as the Son of God. They they put it. They you know advocated for his crucifixion, and the Romans didn't give a rip about Jesus at all. That he was this inconvenient person causing unrest. Uh, so they certainly didn't think he uh, was the Son of God. So those claims uh, to that identity um, were just not that nobody nobody agreed with that. Um, but God has vindicated those claims. God has vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead and installing him as cosmic Lord. So he is now, uh, in, in a sense, in his earthly ministry, in his earthly life, he was the son of God in a hidden sense. I mean, that's the reality about him that nobody really believed. Um, but God has now vindicated him. He's vindicated those claims and that identity by appointing him to this position of cosmic lordship. And I think it's important to recognize also um, that the way the New Testament constructs the identity of, of Jesus Christ as Lord is that he is the crucified and exalted one. Um, so Jesus rules as Lord over uh, his kingdom as a cruciform Lord. That's the cross is still the identity of Jesus. It's not something that is sort of in the in the background. Like that's not um, that that's as if that's not still determinative of Jesus's identity. Um, it's not that he's sort of ruling in power in a sense. He's ruling in this completely upside down way, and his kingdom, of course, is a completely upside down sort of reality that does not work. Um, it does not have an operating dynamic or an ethos shaped by uh, worldly forms of power. Um, at least that's Paul's conception of things. Uh, in verse 5, Paul talks about uh, his mission, which was to bring, I mean, this is the aim of his apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. And um, really, every time you read Romans and you see that term, Gentiles, you should draw a line through it and write instead nations. And I don't know that in my uh, copy of Romans I've done that. I still have got plenty of work I, I need to do to revise and refine that, as you'll see, and I'll mention. Um, but that is, that that's the reality. Gentiles are not an ethnic group. Um, Gentiles are everybody on earth who is non-Jewish. And um, so it really should be the nations because that gets back to really this whole um, Old Testament story about how after humanity had rebelled, um, God sets about this work. I mean, he calls Abraham and he tells him he's going to be the father of many nations. It, when Paul talks about the nations, it goes back to that entire Old Testament story where God is on mission to reclaim all humanity for himself. And that is under the, that term, the nations. The nations have gone astray, and God is about reclaiming the nations. And he, he calls Israel as a light to the nations. And Israel's mission uh, was to be the, the human agency, the national agent 
of God's reclamation of all the nations, and that is of all humanity. Um, so that's the identity of the church. We are we are made up of all nations and ethnicities and tribes. And um, you know, going back to uh, you know, talk about race um, and social class, etc. That's why this is such a massive discussion because God is about uh, unifying and uniting what has been broken up in this corrupted and perverted world. We've been divided um, by ethnicity and race and social class and gender, and God is about putting His people back together, putting humanity back together. But just to say, Paul's mission doesn't come out of nowhere. His apostleship doesn't, you know, come out of nowhere. It is an absolute continuity with God's intentions all along. God's desire originally was for humanity to flourish globally. After human rebellion, um, chaos is thriving globally, and God is on mission to recover humanity and the rest of creation. I mentioned this before. Um, uh, Paul talks about um, fostering the obedience of faith among all nations, and that I mentioned was an inclusio, a literary device that just sort of is a frame uh, with Romans sixteen twenty six. So right at the beginning, Paul talks about the obedience of faith or the obedience of faithfulness. Um, the obedience of you know, pistis, the word for faith, can be rendered faith, loyalty, faithfulness, trust. Um, but just to say that's that that bookends Romans, and it, it seems like that's what Paul is wanting to actually generate in the Roman communities. Um, there's a problem where the obedience of faithfulness and the obedience of loyalty has broken down and they're divided. And that's what Paul wants to foster. And of course, um, he wants to do that for the sake of God's name. Um, which is one of many echoes throughout all of Romans. And I'm excited to talk more about this theme. Uh, it, it show, it, it's, a, it's a massive, massive um, sort of uh, framework that is up and running in Romans. And that is uh, humanity as the image of God. Um, humanity as living this kind of Godward direction or um, you know, living on earth um, for God's glory. And that that's what it means to be human, is to be, you know, to be fully human, is to be the image of God. Irenaeus said, um, the glory of God is the human fully alive. And uh, that is what God is, is um, that's what God is recovering in us. Um, in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates humanity in his image. That is, God constructs the world as God's own temple. And the image of God in the temple, just like in ancient temples, you go in the temple and there's the image of the deity, and that's you know supposed to be an image of the unseen God. Uh, in the temple that is creation, the image of the unseen God is humans, all of humanity. And um, as we live lives of flourishing and um, enjoy and continue to spread the shalom of God and the reign of God, Within creation, God is glorified because that's what image of God is meant to do and enjoy, flourish within creation and to foster creation's flourishing um, in the great order of God's shalom. That's what it means to live for God's name's sake. Um, to do the reverse is to do what 
the constructors of the Tower of Babel did in Genesis 11 when they you know, said, when they said, let's gather ourselves together and make bricks and bake them thoroughly. I, just, I love that expression. It's just so funny. Let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly um, and build this tower making for ourselves a name. <clears throat> so living with that sort of self-referentiality is um, and, and to sort of construct something for themselves is the exact opposite of um of living for god's name's sake that's it's interesting to think about things from this perspective but genesis 11 is like the low point of the bible humanity had devolved uh to such an extent that they wanted to sort of construct their own uh, purpose and meaning within creation instead of uh, enjoying creation that was given to humanity as a gift so that's what the gospel is all about for Paul. It's about God recovering humanity so that they will live in ways that uh, glorify God. Um, when we when we are truly ourselves, when we are truly free and live in uh, God's order of flourishing, that radiates glory to God. When we draw upon and then radiate out from ourselves and inhabit and enjoy God's flourishing. Um, yeah, to be the glory of God um, is God's glory, to be truly human and fully alive in this world, not saying, you know, praise the Lord all the time or sort of having to say that verbally, all that kind of all the time. Um, I think it's very interesting when, uh, to, to think about how Paul associates obedience and faith or just talks about the obedience of faith or the obedience of loyalty or faithfulness. Um, I think that that is striking, especially um, for how, for me, in it just seemed like obedience was is always such a dark and bad word or such a a constricting and constraining reality. Um, but but for Paul, obedience and faith are are near synonyms. It, it all has to just do with loyalty to God and loyalty to Christ and His program and uh, faithfully flourishing under God's gracious reign in Christ. Sadly, obedience for many of us is this kind of drudge, you know, uh, this life of drudgery and obligation and duty, and, and um, it's the doldrums. Uh, living in that sort of way is actually disobedience. When Jesus encounters it uh, on the pages of the Gospels, that's not obedience. Obedience is recognizing uh, that Jesus is Lord of his liberating reign and being purposeful about inhabiting that. So anyway, kind of interesting. Uh, Paul then talks about the addressees of the letter in uh, verses 7 and following, and he, he talks about all who are beloved of God in Rome called saints. And he says, I thank my God for you all. And I think it's a very interesting exercise to read through Romans and just circle all the, the appearances of the term all. Because in the Roman situation, there is division. And what one of the um, strategies of this letter is to bring all the Roman Christians together in one group. The things that are true of anybody who is Christian is true of everybody. There's not sort of classes or there's, there is no hierarchy. Um, so 
That's one of the things that Paul is doing in this letter. And I think it's striking in light of what I was saying earlier, um, that he addresses them all as beloved of God. That's their identity. And that is the identity of people who are Christian. And again, he calls them called saints, called holy ones. Again, um, just right there, you see Paul's rhetorical strategy very clear. All of you who are beloved of God in Rome, that is, you you all are, I think, my God for you all. So he's bringing them all together, and he is forging a common identity with them. He is called, and they are called. So really interesting um, in thinking about our identities, and there's just loads to think about and to talk about just right there, especially for thinking about ministry, um, thinking about the postures and practices and dynamics of mutuality um, that ministry practitioners and pastors and, and uh, church servants, um, people who are involved in varieties of ministry, uh, should be purposefully constructing and, and um, inhabiting with the people that they serve. Um, yeah, I think it's really unfortunate that so much of church ministry is spoken about in terms of leadership, like those terms, leadership and authority. Um, I think that it is, it's revelatory of Christian values that we use terms like that when Paul didn't. Paul used terms associated with service, servanthood, humiliation, and mutuality. He is not their authority um, he's alongside them and underneath them, um, which of course he is because he's an apostle of the crucified Lord, um, one who comes to us from a position below. It, the, the kingdom of God is this radically upside-down reality, and the, the, the discoveries of just the particulars of just how it is upside-down to me are just endlessly fascinating. So in greeting them um, in verses 8 to 15, it's interesting to track rhetorically how Paul goes about establishing his relationship with them, these people he has not met. Uh, he commends their faithfulness uh, in verse 8, and he talks about how he is constantly praying for them and longing to see them. And in chapter 15, he's going to talk about um, how he's planning to uh, to go to Spain, the far edge of the known world at that time. Um, he wants to get to Spain, and so he does want, uh, you know, stable church communities there in Rome, and he he also wants to see them uh, to sort of bivouac on his way to Spain, or extended bivouac, a lot of bivouacking. Is is bivouacking only an overnight? to gain provisions, or is it an extended period of time? It's an open question. Not for today's episode, anyway. Uh, but I like thinking about Paul's uh, intentions to get to Spain because um, it gives me an opportunity to say bivouac. It's a great word. Um, I want to just... I, I should have corrected this translation um, because I don't think that it is all that great. Looking closely at it... Uh, in verse 10, when he talks about praying for them, in the translation that I sent out, uh, I left this um, uh, not fixed, 
Paul says, always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. And um, I'm not crazy about that because there's a passive verb here, which I think is really strategic, especially when Paul talks about um, uh, coming to see people. This happens in Philemon as well. At the very end of Philemon, um, he talks about how he is hoping that eventually he will be given to Philemon. Like he doesn't say, I hope to eventually come to you, but he says that he has hopes um, that he will be given to Philemon, which is so cool, I think. So it's, just, it's just a very interesting way of phrasing things. And Paul's very intentional about this um, in not being presumptuous and in sort of reckoning with the reality that his apostolic movements and um, the way that his ministry is going to be carried out, he's very deferential to what God has for him, what you know, whatever God's priorities are, and he's not presumptuous. Um, this is this is a little bit clunky, but I think this is a better translation. Uh, always in my prayers, asking whether now at last I will be put on a good path by the will of God to come to you, and that it's important because that verb to be put on a good path um, is passive. And um, he's not saying that I may succeed in coming to you. That's active. Uh, and uh, eudao, the verb, um, literally, if you break it down, the the you, the eu, um, is sort of you know good, and uh, the dao, you know, is to be give. Or, uh, sorry, is a path. Um, so it's like it's not to succeed or to be on a good path. It's more like to be put on a good path, because it's a passive verb. And again, I think that what is happening there is Paul is reckoning with the reality that his apostolic movements and everything and anything about his life, um, he sees it as sort of God has prerogatives over my movements. It's not that I'm this, again, authoritative apostle, you know, do what I want. I'm, I might come to you or I'm, I'm going to come to you. Um, it's just extremely deferential, which is characteristic of how uh, Paul phrases things elsewhere, like I said at the end of his letter to Philemon. Like I said, I should have fixed that, uh, but you know, it's a work in progress, just like me. So Paul uh, goes on to talk about his longing for mutual blessing. And again, we see his rhetorical strategy here uh, in verses 11 and 12. He wants to see them so that he can be a blessing to them. He wants to impart some spiritual gift uh, to the Romans. And he also wants to be encouraged together with you while among you. So it's like he's looking for this uh, this mutual gift exchange. Uh, but in that first part, he gives the purpose for it. Uh, he wants to impart some spiritual gift to you that you might be established. And I think it's really interesting here Um that Paul says he wants to impart some spiritual gift to them. And uh, he's not specific about it. And I don't think that uh, it's not my, it's my opinion anyway. Uh, I disagree with the major commentator on this. Uh, it's Richard Longnecker in his massive volume on Romans uh, says that, um, especially chapters five through eight, that's the gift that he's giving to them. I'm not sure that that's the case. Um, he wants to get there so that he can get 
uh, give to them some spiritual gifts that that they would be established. Um, and I'm not sure that the letter is the gift. Um, and it just seems it. This is also just interesting to me um, that Paul leaves open the nature of the gift and um, the nature of the gift that he has to give to them. And uh, it seems like he's kind of open to the manner in which there will be mutual encouragement uh, you know, of him and them when he's there. And I think that this is really strategic for understanding spiritual gifts um, in our church cultures. I, this is so, it makes me crazy to think about it. But I remember back in college uh, taking a spiritual gift inventory, you know, like a, a questionnaire uh, to, to find out like what your spiritual gift is. I think that is that is exactly backwards. When Paul talks about spiritual gifts, um, the focus is on the church. Like what is it that is going to be a blessing to the Roman churches? That will determine how Paul is a gift to them. It's not Paul. Like the focus is not on Paul um, and what his gifts and talents are. The focus is on them. And that matches uh, how Paul talks about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians. The, the question there is, what is going to be a blessing to the church? What, what does the church need and how does the church need to be edified and blessed and built? That will determine what people's gifts are. It's not the individual that... Um, determines what the gift is. Uh, and in our individualized culture, things work exactly backwards for many of us. We think first about what our desires, and our gifts, and our talents are, and then we imagine that we already know how we are going to be a gift to the church. Um, but that, like I said, that's exactly backward. The, the stable reality or the, the initial reality that has to be determinative is what does the church need? What, um, yeah, what, what, what is the church in need of? That will determine the giftedness of the individuals, and we'll, we'll, we'll all sort of find our identity over time. We don't our, we don't know our identity already. Um, just like I mean, like in a marriage relationship, um, two people who make the crazy decision to unite in marriage, they know each other the least at the start you sort of jump into this relationship and find out who you are and find out who the other person is and find out what the contours of your relationship are as it goes. You, it's a process of discovering. It's a process of welcoming a stranger and getting to know a stranger and getting to know yourself. And the same is true of how we imagine our um, the place that we will play in churches. So anyway... Lots of rethinking is necessary there. And anyway, there's so many things about spiritual gifts um, are backwards and, and even less is known, I think, about some of those texts than we imagine. Um, but anyway, he goes on to say he wants to be encouraged together with you while among you. And here again, Paul sort of puts himself among them on the same level with them, and he wants to be blessed and encouraged by them. They are going to be giving gifts to him. They're going to be blessing him. And, you know, however that looks when I come to you, that's what I'm looking forward to. Um, Paul is a, a disciple who needs blessing and encouragement, and he wants them to be uh, giving that to him. So 
like I said, I think there's so much here that's worthy of reflection for participating in church cultures, especially for thinking about ministry and how it is that uh, people who are pastors or who are in um, ministry responsible care situations, I'm trying not to use the term leadership, uh, those ought to be postures of mutuality, cultivating mutuality, not top-down dictating. Paul does not talk about apostolic authority. He is with them. He's he's one of them. He wants to be among them to be blessed and to be a blessing. Um, so anyway, I think ministers ought to be cultivating that sort of thing. And uh, for the rest of us, when there are people that are in ministry that do cultivate that sort of thing, we ought to take up those opportunities and really uh, do our part in blessing people who are in ministry. Ministry is very lonely. Pastors um, are lonely. And like I said earlier, talking about Chuck DeGroat's book, that fosters a lot of bad practices and habits and behaviors and patterns. Um, and we can do our part um, by fostering um, safe places where pastors uh, can find environments of rest and refreshment. In verses thr uh, 13 to 15, Paul talks about his aim in coming there. He wants to do gospel work there. Uh, the, it's a single verb, euangelizomai, for preach the gospel. And unfortunately, um, it comes across to us as Paul wants to get there to preach the gospel to them. And we, because of how we understand the gospel as this um, message about how you get in, we misunderstand what Paul is talking about here. He's not thinking about sharing the gospel with them as if, you know, like four spiritual laws or giving his testimony or something like that. The gospel is a reality and it is speech about the reality. It's the reality and it's talk about the reality of God reclaiming what has been lost, restoring what was broken, redeeming what is enslaved, and doing all of that in Christ and in this reality called the people of God, the church. That is the gospel. Um, so it's not some entrance formula. And in Paul's view, gospel has gone off the rails in Rome. If there's division or, or fighting or there are uh, cliques that have developed or groups that have developed, and one group is trumpeting its superior claims over another group, and the other group is despising and judging, as we see in Romans 14 and 15. So gospel has gone off the rails, and he wants to get there to do gospel work, which is healing and restoring, um, to mend relationships and to bring people back together so that there is abiding unity. So the you know the fruit that Paul wants to see born in the Roman communities is not conversion, uh, but rather it's it's restoration. And um, Paul goes on to talk about how, how he is obligated to all people. Uh, because that's the scope of his ministry. He is the apostle to the nations. And um, so because of that, he is under obligation to everyone. So just to say, um, in, in, in focusing on the content or you know the, the actual words that Paul uses, you can you know he uh, identifies himself and he greets, his um, audiences, and he constructs for himself an identity, and he constructs for them an identity. And uh, the big thing that I want um, to highlight is is just that, those relational dynamics of mutuality, so that 
Paul's audiences and Paul are sort of brought together in one group and the two uh, competing factions in the Roman house churches are brought together as one group. And there's, there's, there's this relationship of mutuality. Um, a lot of good food for thought there in thinking about how we can be seeing ourselves in those ways and how we can actually behave and speak and act um, and construct pattern and take on postures that embody that reality. Um, for me, I know I've said this before, I, I talk about doing this podcast for myself. That's one of the dynamics that drives this. Um, I don't... I don't do this sort of from on high or as if I have all the answers or to sort of advance my view on stuff. Um, I My hope is really to generate conversation and it's done that. It's been wonderful. You know, I offer myself and my thoughts and I welcome responses. And um, I, I did this in an attempt to, uh, to draw others into conversation in the hope of having my thinking refined because I know that, like I said, this keeps me intellectually active and being in conversation provokes reflection in me, and um, all of that will be good for me. I'll I'll learn. Um, I'll learn to express myself more fully and faithfully and frankly, and um, that'll be good. So it's my way of sort of turning other people into agents of blessing and goodness for me, uh, which inevitably um, brings out other people's best self. So all of that is an attempt to practice that kind of mutuality and um, to sort of keep at bay dynamics that can creep in, that can corrupt those um, that posture of mutuality and those relationships of mutuality, like you know money and all the other stuff that goes along with, with, with everything. Um, I had said last week that I do not believe that verses 16 and 17 are the, you know, the thesis statement of Romans or even the theme of Romans or anything like that. Um, verse 16 begins with a four, which means it's the backup of something else that was said. It's the grounding of an assertion. So, you know, he, he's eager to see the gospel at work in Rome. And then he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And like I said, uh, I think last week, uh, I mean, shame is such a massive reality for the ancient Roman world, um, you know, notions of honor and shame and to be associated with something that is uh, breaking down and um, kind of falling apart uh, would invite shame. And it, it's just, I think that that's a window into what's happening in the Roman churches, uh, this network of house churches. They're, they're losing hope. People may be drifting uh, from meeting and, and sort of uh, you know, falling away or, or just you know, giving up on this. They're losing hope. And this is a very tender pastoral note. It's not you know, Paul jumping up on the table and saying, you know, come at me. Uh, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'll take on anybody. That's, that's not the, the sense at all. Um, you know, to a bunch of people that are wondering, is God really doing, is God really at work? here? Is this really a reality? Or are we just fooling ourselves? Paul means to inject hope into these communities. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm confident in the gospel. This reality and the announcement of the reality that it, and the reality that it, it creates is the power of God 
for salvation to everyone who believes. Again, another all. Everyone. Uh, it's this inclusive reality, and it is God's power at work. And then there's this um, another four, uh, because in the gospel reality, God's right-making work is revealed. That expression, the righteousness of God, I do not believe um, that it has to do with God's moral character. It's not that God's moral character or God's righteous character is revealed. Um, I'm not even sure that it's necessarily God's power. Um, it It is God's power. The gospel is God's power into salvation, for in it, God's right-making work is revealed. That is, God's justice, God's righteousness. And uh, like I said, Paul is building in so many places on um, uh, passages in Isaiah, especially uh, chapters 40 and onward, where God makes all these promises about how his righteousness is going to be seen um, and God's righteous work, his restorative work, or I should say his work of righteousness, is his work of restoration of Israel and the nations. He's bringing humanity back to himself. He's going to transform uh, the situation where humanity is trapped in unrighteousness and Israel is trapped in, well, Israel is sort of trapped in unfaithfulness, um, but humanity is trapped in injustice, unrighteousness. The Hebrew terms and the Greek term for righteousness are the Hebrew terms and Greek term for justice. Um, and that has to do with truly, with, with being truly human. Um, Justice in the Bible has to do with the steps that need to be taken uh, to um, to restore shalom when it's been put out of whack. And there's a massive sense in which that's the case uh, because Israel uh, is disobedient, they're in exile, and all of humanity is trapped in unfaithfulness, or uh, sorry, in uh, unrighteousness, uh, that is injustice, and they need to be delivered. And God is doing that um, in the gospel. Um, so God's righteousness is that right-making work. God is setting right what has been put out of whack, and that is humanity. And um, as Romans goes on, um, we'll see that uh, the way, the specific way that humanity has been put out of whack, or that is trapped in unrighteousness and is sort of in this bad situation, is that humanity is not being image of God. We are not caring for creation and fostering its flourishing as God intended, uh, rather, we are raping uh, creation, savaging one another, and uh, humanity has been turned against each other and turned against creation, and we're plundering it, and all of that is a grief to God, as um, Paul talks about in Romans 8. And God is restoring humanity in Christ um, to, our, to be truly human so that we will care for creation. Creation is in this condition of groaning because of us. So when God transforms humanity, creation will find relief. Um, interesting, this, this expression from faith to faith, I still am trying to grapple with what, what Paul means by that. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it's from, um, you know, sort of from Israel's faith to the church's faith, or is it, does it mean like um, faith from beginning to end, like fully by faith or something like that? I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm still, this is, and I'm not sure that there's any way to necessarily find this out. Uh, Matt Bates has an interesting take on this. It seems to be most faithful. I think it's 
or it seems to be um, make the best sense, uh, that is something like it's fully by faith, by faith from beginning to end, or something like that. It's interesting uh, because Paul quotes Habakkuk two four here when he says, "But the righteous one will live from faithfulness or by faith." Um, I think that what's actually, you know, when 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 Paul, just like anywhere in the in the New Testament, when there's an Old Testament passage quoted, there's a it's not just words that are being borrowed, but there's a larger narrative that's being drawn upon. And I think Paul is drawing on that larger narrative from Habakkuk. And in Habakkuk 1, you know, God tells Habakkuk what he's going to do. He's going to bring in you know, these hordes from the north uh, to judge Israel. And Habakkuk is like, uh, no, you're not. You can't do that. What are you talking about? You can't use this unrighteous and ungodly people. Like, yes, we're disobedient, but that's just not how you do things. That's not how you behave. How, how can you do that? And um, sort of, you know, God sort of blows Habakkuk's mind by doing this new thing. And then uh, Habakkuk, you know, wrestles with, you know, kind of getting on board with what God is up to. Um, but that citation comes from God's word to Habakkuk when he responds to Habakkuk and he says, but my righteous one will live from faithfulness. And what he's getting at there is... Um, that you know god has this freedom and prerogative to do a radically new thing if he wants to and really in the larger narrative of the old testament god is so committed to drawing in the nations to himself that disobedient israel who refused to be the national agent of that move of god um god has the freedom um and because he's so committed to saving that when a people become an obstacle to saving they face judgment um and when God acts in this unanticipated way, God's faithful one will get on board, is what God is saying to Habakkuk. And I think that that is what is happening here in Romans. Um, there's this, the gospel in a set, is completely in continuity with the Old Testament, with, with the scriptures of Israel. Um, but there's a sense in which this is a, this is a somewhat of a departure, where God's intention was to use, you had called Israel, to be in this privileged situation, to be the agency of the reclamation of the nations, but he's God has made the shift where now the agency of the reclamation of the nations is the gospel reality itself. And this reality in Christ and the, the reality that is, you know, publicly is the church, the public and social embodiment of Christ. And so this is a new thing. And Paul is going to have to address all the questions about that in chapters 9 through 11. But I think that Habakkuk, uh, it's, it's, it's cited, Paul cites it in Galatians and it also appears in Hebrews. Um, it sort of becomes this expression of what genuine faith involves in, in these kind of situations that Paul is facing and um, that Hebrews is, the writer of Hebrews is facing as well. When God does an unanticipated new thing, what is required is faith and faithfulness and loyalty to God and to make adjustments and get in on what God is doing. Um, so instead of saying, 
you know, no way, God, that cannot be, which I think in Paul's imagination is in some ways what's happening in the Roman churches. That is, there's a group claiming that the way that faithfulness to God looks in Christ is to take on Jewish identity. And that's, in, in Paul's view, that's a reversion. Um, that, that That's a disobedient move. That's not the appropriate move. There's this new thing that God is doing where, yes, over a thousand years, for over a thousand years, to be the people of the God of Israel looked like being Jewish. But now to be the people of the God of Israel who's revealed in Christ can look like any and every ethnicity. And it could look like some unanticipated, it'll take on unanticipated forms. It'll look in some ways uh, unfamiliar to people, to even to people who have been steeped in the scriptures of Israel. This new reality requires this posture of nimbleness that will uh, make adjustments and make moves that uh, that our obedience to Christ, um, even if that looks unfamiliar, which um, that whole dynamic actually reflecting on all of that uh, lies behind the name Faith Improvised, because to be the people of God throughout the whole story of Scripture required improvisation, performances of what of who God is on earth. Uh, that are always in continuity with previous performances, but are always new because new situations demand new responses. So um, the name of this podcast and my blog are sort of an attempt to get at that in some way. So audiences are going to need to adjust. Being Christian looks different. Being faithful to the God of Israel does not look like you thought it was going to look like. Get on board make these adjustments. The the gospel is on the move. And if you are so uh, culturally captive to forms that are familiar, you're going to be left behind. That's going to become basically disobedience. My word, um, think about the implications of that reality in our day, where we can get so familiar with forms of... um, of being Christian that we have known from our past that we won't make the adjustments and going back to it, even all the talk about uh, gender and uh, race justice, let alone social class, these discussions that are up and running in our day, sadly, um, many Christian people are resistant and uh, adopt postures and respond from defensiveness instead of embracing um potentially new ways that God wants to reorder our communities that look like God's justice. Uh, I think we're making the same mistake that Paul is trying to correct here in Romans and, and certainly in Galatians and um, very very similar to what is happening in Hebrews. Let's just say much of the New Testament and leave it there. Well, we're off and running with, uh, with Romans. Um, like I said, one of the best ways to get in on this is just go through the document uh, that I've sent out um, and just read it repeatedly. In fact, a great thing to do would be to read Romans 1 to 4 repeatedly or to read Romans 1 to 5, 11. Just read it over and over and over, draw connections, um, underline repeated words, circle stuff, write questions in the margin, and um, hopefully some of that will be um, addressed and we'll you'll We'll end up with a better understanding of Romans 
at the end of all this. Well, as I said earlier, it's an absolutely gorgeous day. Uh, the person to whom I'm related by marriage will be home soon, and we're going out for a massive dinner. And whenever you're listening to this, it's still a beautiful day. Don't let it get away.